This week, we celebrate 60 years of human spaceflight by having a closer look at the first flight by Yuri Gagarin. To do this, we're joined by author Stephen Walker, who has recently released a book called Beyond, which is being considered as the definitive book about Gagarin. 60 years of humans in space. We'd love to hear about your favorite. Please share your favorite missions with us on social media. We're at Space and Things 1 on Twitter. Or get involved at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And we currently have 19 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. So why don't you do us a flavor and let us know what you think by heading over there and giving us a review. But before that, please enjoy episode 32 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 32 of our podcast. Now, anniversaries seem to be coming thick and fast, and while it may be 60 years of human spaceflight, it's also the 40th anniversary of the first space shuttle mission. But don't worry, we'll be covering that next week. It's crazy how these things all seem to happen at once, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 365 days, and they decide to put them all at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm really excited about um obviously I'm excited about celebrating 60 years of human spaceflight, but um I can't believe it's been 40 years since shuttle because I don't really remember the first mission, but I remember when the second one went up. That's the first launch I saw, and I'm like it's been that long since, you know, <laughs> I, it's been 40 years. That's nuts. You know, it does it really does not seem like it. And then you watch the press conference, uh there's a a uh, press conference that just got released yesterday. Uh, it's it's the STS one preflight uh, presser, uh, and I think Lunar Module Five that channel on YouTube released it, and uh, it's it's got Crippen and Young, and uh, if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it because it's freaking it's freaking hilarious. I did see you post the link. I just haven't got around to watching it yet, but I will do. I will do, and I'll post the link uh, to that video in our show notes and embed it on our website so people can find it nice and easily. Yeah, when you watch that, you realize it was 40 years ago because uh, <laughs> you look at Crippen in young suits, you know, and you're like, wow, <laughs> they look like they're on an eight. They look like they're on Miami Vice. Like they Amazing. Look like, they look like they're going to like fly the shuttle and then bust some like drug dealers or something, you know? <laughs> they probably would have done as well. Yeah, they probably would have done. Yeah, they could have done that just fine, I'm sure. But yeah, 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 so it's just it reminds you that yeah, that was in the 1980s. That was a little while ago, so it's it's pretty yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty fun. But it's a neat view if you can watch it. Please watch it. Yeah, we'll do. Um, Emily, how much do you know about Yuri's Night? Because obviously that's this week as well, isn't it? Yeah, um, I know a little bit about it. Uh, obviously, since uh, COVID nineteen uh, started uh, last year, it's been virtual. But uh, I know a little bit about it. I've never been to one in person. I was hoping last year to go to it. It was supposed to be um, at Kennedy Space Center under Atlantis and all that. But I know. And unfortunately, because of COVID, that didn't happen. So they um, they did do like an online thing. And um, I think they're doing something similar this year. So it should be a lot of fun. They're probably going to show, you know, some interviews um, with people. I know Sean, Dr. Sean Proctor who's going to be on uh, the Inspiration4 mission, is going to be on there. So that should be really exciting. 
it's just kind of a fun, you know, casual show. Like I said, I think this year it's all online, obviously, because um, we're still getting over the pandemic in the United States, although we're getting a little bit closer now. I got my first shot this week. I did go last year uh, to it in online, obviously, and it I, I had a good time. Yeah. So this year they're doing a big global live stream event on the 10th of April at 7 p.m. Eastern time. So uh, if you're interested, check out yurisnight.net for more information. Uh, the cast list is pretty awesome. Obviously, Emily, you mentioned Dr. Sean Proctor, uh, but her crewmate from that Inspiration for Mission, Chris Emboski, will also be there, as well as Richard Branson, Layla Melvin, Richard Garriott, Bill Nye, Bob Crippen, Katie Coleman, Simone Geertz, Tim Dodd, and many more. They've got musicians and mixologists and all sorts, so it should be a fun night. Uh, but essentially, Yuri's night can be whatever you want it to be with your friends and family and whatever you want, on and around April the 12th. Yeah. I've only heard about this since doing the podcast, but I think it's a really great idea. So yeah. anyone... Uh, who is listening, who isn't doing anything on the 10th, why not check out the stream? Um, I felt like we needed to at least mention this uh, if we're covering the 60th anniversary of Yuri's flight. Exactly. And um, yeah, I think there are like private groups that are having uh, their own Yuri's nights out there as well. So if you go to the website, you can probably look at that as well. And um, I know before COVID happened, they would obviously they had events all around the world, but um, like in person and online events. So it was a little different before, obviously, before COVID happened. But next year, hopefully, maybe things will be back to normal and whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs> and we can have some in-person events because I, yeah. I tell you, I would love to go uh, see that at Atlantis. That would be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, sign me up. Also, I'm going to see if there's anything going on in London next year because... Uh, Make some friends, meet some fellow space nerds. All sounds like uh, like a good time, and everybody's a winner. Yeah, absolutely. But, but last week, Emily and I got to speak to Stephen Walker, uh, whose book Beyond has just been released in time for the anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's first flight 60 years ago. Uh, we were given a heads up about this book by Teasel Muir Harmony when we interviewed her a few weeks back, and I'm really glad she did, because I am really enjoying this book. Now, uh, Yuri Gagarin's daughter, Elena, has called the book, quote, dramatic and dynamic. Stephen Walker's passion for his subject, along with exceptional research and attention to detail, have brought my father's extraordinary journey vividly to life. And you'll hear that within this interview, which is probably one of my favourites we've done to date. And we've had some great interviews. Uh, Stephen is clearly passionate about this and can really tell a story. So without any further gilding the lily, here's Stephen Walker. So welcome, Stephen, to the Space and Things podcast. Thank you very much for joining us to help us learn about Gagarin and the first human spaceflight. I know both Emily and I are embarrassed to admit we don't know enough about him. So let's start right at the beginning. How did you end up writing this book? Is he someone that you've always been fascinated with? Or was there a particular event that made you realize that this book needed to be written? Um a great question i mean what happened with me was that back in i think gosh when was it now about 2012 i read a book 
uh, which is written by a, a, a Russian cameraman who was a secret cameraman who was working with the Soviet space program in the 50s and the 60s. And this guy had basically was a top documentary cameraman who was enlisted secretly to film what was going on in the space program. And he filmed everything. He had these crews with him, some of the best cameramen and best teams in the Soviet film world, without being able to tell their families or anything what they were doing went out and started filming this incredible sci-fi stuff that was going on. It was actually more fantastic than reality. So this guy has this, this, um, this camera, he's going around, he's filming stuff, and he starts to keep his diary. And he keeps his diary, and the diary is published in an abbreviated form well after his death in Russian. And then it gets translated into an incredibly kind of unknown English version. I get hold of this. And I'm reading this stuff, and my real kind of job is a documentary filmmaker. That's what I've actually been doing most of my life. I'm a sort of writer, but really I do documentary films. And I'd seen this thing, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to try and make a film where I actually find this footage, and I'm going to get this up -res. It was all shot on 35mm colour. It must be there somewhere in Moscow and elsewhere. I'm going to find it, I'm going to get some money to find it, and I'm going to make it into a theatrical feature documentary film. So off I went, and I went to a company called Working Title Films here that I have a relationship with in London that makes feature films, and I pitched it, and before I knew it, I was in a plane to Russia with a Cameron to shoot fantastic, obviously high-definition 4K interviews with some of the survivors, the witnesses who are still alive of the beginnings of the Soviet space program. And I started to look for this footage. And I found quite a lot of this footage is unbelievable. These were raw rushes that were shot. They're not edited. They are literally as they came through the can. And some of them were in kind of rat infested, you know, archives places. Others were, you know, buried away. And I mean, we just found stuff bit by bit. And it got really extraordinary because as I was interviewing people, I started to realize that there was this incredible story about this guy, Yuri Gagarin, that people in my part don't really know very much about, but in Moscow and in Russia is still like an absolute iconic hero. I mean, if you could imagine, in the center of Moscow, there is a statue that is higher than Nelson's column with mm. a kind of, you know, titanium Yuri Gagarin on the top of it. Cut a long story short, we, we began to run, for reasons I still don't understand, whether it's something to do with the way Russia was moving, I don't know, but we started to find obstacles in our way when it came to getting this footage. Um, and there were all kinds of issues. I don't know what it was. It may just have been bureaucracy. It may be whatever it was, we weren't getting the footage we needed. So we weren't able to make the film, though I did make a sort of 35-minute taster for Universal Studios and for Working Title. But I thought, I've got all this, what do I do with this? I've got these incredible interviews with at least four people who had since passed away. This is an amazing moment in history. This is the first human being to leave the planet. And then I just, okay, it was the obvious thing. I can't to write a book, you know? Mm. So I, I did, and this is it, and that's what happened. So I wrote it in lockdown. I don't think I'd written the words chapter one this time last year. And then I wrote <laughs> mad white heat for the anniversary because my publishers at HarperCollins kept saying, we've got to get this anniversary, we've got to get this anniversary. <laughs> so that, that's the story. That's the genesis of what happened. Fantastic. Absolutely amazing. There are a ton of myths about Yuri Gagarin and the Soviet space program in general, which still propagate uh, to this day. I think some of it is because Gagarin died young, and obviously we've all heard about the lost cosmonauts. 
Uh, you're probably familiar with that. Um, and there's also a lot of mythology about Komarov's death. Am I saying his name right? Komarov, yeah, absolutely. A lot of rubbish on the internet about it as well, actually, including things that he said, apparently, which was, you know, like, he scream, how dare you kill me? And it's all rubbish, by the way. That's just made up. It wasn't like that at all. Yeah, exactly. So is your work trying to debunk these myths and how? Look, this might sound really pompous and stupid and whatever, but what I'm trying to do is, mm. as best I can, is to tell, as excitingly as I can, a definitive story about what really happened, okay? Mm-hmm. So, Understand. yeah, I mean, I'm not going, I'm not, my book, I'm not saying that let's debunk a whole lot of myths, but inevitably when you're trying to assess the past and you're, you know, weighing up the evidence and you're talking to people and you're delving into the archives and you're putting the bits and pieces together, what you end up with is myths that get that get debunked. And you're quite right, actually, that one of the big problems with the Soviet space program was it got lost in its own secrecy. I mean, everything was secret. These guys were being trained in secret. The American astronauts, the sort of Mercury 7, very famous in their day, Everything was out in the open, essentially. But in the Soviet Union, everything was closed. Everything was. And you start to discover extraordinary things. For example, you start to discover that when the Soviets sent up these dog flights, which were like test flights they did to pave the way for a human finally to fly in space, what they did on these dog flights, and certainly latterly, was they the KGB insisted that bombs were placed on board the spacecraft with the dogs inside them. So that if anything went wrong with the spacecraft and by mistake it headed towards, say, the United States of America, they could be triggered to blow up. And in fact, my book starts with two dogs in a spacecraft that's gone wrong and is heading towards Siberia and there's a bomb on board and two dogs inside it. And they're heading towards Siberia in the worst winter in the last 30 years and a bunch of search and rescuers have to get to the dogs before this time bomb on board actually blows up, destroys the cat and kills the dog inside, the dogs, both of them. To this day, mm-hmm. even the names of those dogs are not completely known. So a lot of this stuff is kind of in, wow. is all this sort of myth and mystery, which is part of the kind of, well, it's kind of cool and exciting. And what I'm trying to do is not set out to debunk this. I'm too yeah. grand for, I'm, I'm a little guy, you know, going in there with my, you know, my magnifying glass, trying to kind of work out what really happened. And what emerges is, is this incredible story underneath these myths, where things were much more dramatic, actually, than they're sometimes presented as being, and where you discover, you know, what was behind the secrets. So, you know, you mentioned the lost cosmonauts, for example, as a great example. Yeah. This, this, there was a myth that was very believed, particularly in the United States, that before mm-hmm. Yuri Gagarin, there were other cosmonauts that died in space. He was not the first. There were others beforehand. And when you really penetrate those myths, you begin to realise that what it is, is, is a mixture of myths that have come to, a mixture of truths, I should say, that have come together to create a myth. One truth is that the Russians were sending dummies into space that looked like human beings. And they even had tape recorders stuck in the inside of these dummies to actually broadcast music and sounds and singing as the dummy went around the world, which if you were on the ground listening in, might sound to you like it was a genuine live cosmonaut. And when the actual cosmonaut dummy landed in the middle of wherever it was in Russia, some of the villagers who came across them were convinced that they were real, when in fact they were not, they were dummies. But there was also a real cosmonaut who did die. A young, young, in fact, the youngest of all of the cosmonaut training group, Mm -hmm. a guy called Bondarenko. 
Yeah. And they had a, they had a they had a test called an isolation chamber test where these guys actually had to go into a chamber and survive there for two weeks where they weren't allowed to talk to anybody to see if they could actually cope without going insane. And this guy on day 10 of being inside the isolation chamber took off some of his electrodes, which were soaked with cotton wool and alcohol. And he pulled off one of these electrodes with a cotton wool and he tossed it behind him. And the cotton wool with the alcohol soaked in it dropped on top of an electric hot plate in an oxygenated atmosphere inside the pressure mm. chamber. The whole thing went into flames and he burned to death. And he actually died a few hours later horribly of burns in hospital. And this happened three weeks before Yuri Gagarin, who was a very good friend of this young man, actually flew in space. When you start putting wow. these things together, bingo, you get a lost cosmonaut. And that's how these myths were propagated. That's fascinating. I've heard those stories, and it's kind of neat to have them put together in a way that explains why people believe a particular myth. Because I was always like, why did people believe this crap? You know? mm. <laughs> so. I, I tell you something, I mean, there are, the great thing about this story is that there are lots of them. I mean, conspiracy theories abound when it comes to the Soviet space, but it's, mm -hmm. a natural, it's a natural consequence of a culture of secrecy. It just happens. Mm -hmm. The more secret you are, the more conspiracies you get. It's as simple as that. And actually, even Gagarin's death in 1968, where he was killed in a plane crash at a very young age, he was 34 years old, when his plane that he was in a fighter jet with a very experienced instructor on board crashed in the snow near Moscow. And to this day, it's never been fully clear what happened. And at the time and afterwards, there was an enormous amount of speculation, particularly in the Western press, that he was murdered by the KGB, um, that he was too difficult, too big, too mm -hmm. famous, too critical of the Soviet, too, uh, you know, he was a live time bomb and they had to get rid of him. I don't believe that was the case, by the way, but I can see how the conspiracy builds. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, and it's part of the fascination. I mean, it's part of the seduction of this story in some ways that you actually penetrate some of this and you kind of get underneath the covers and you start finding what's inside the bed and bringing mm. it out to light. Yeah. I, I mean, I've read the, read the first few chapters and almost on every page there's a, there's a, Oh wow! Moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dave. You're on my you're on my Christmas list. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's true. Is is there's so much to this? It's very rich. Yeah, mm. that's a great way of putting it. Very mm. rich. So my girlfriend, she hasn't traditionally been a space person, but she's learned to love the subject as she's got to know me. <laughs> she has to suffer it now. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and one of the things she suffered through, but actually really enjoyed, was the right stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Disney Plus TV sure. show. And uh, when I said what was interviewing you, she was having mm. a flick through the book and she saw the photos of the monkeys and the dogs and she was horrified, horrified mm. about them. Um, they are horrified, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and she then saw the photos of the mission control and obviously you've got the state-of-the-art state mission control uh, that the US had and hardly anything that the Russians had. So her question yeah. to me was, how comes... <laughs> Uh -huh. They were so successful and everything that America did blew yeah. up. And I had yeah. to try and tell her that yeah. actually that's not strictly true. The Russians had no. plenty of things go wrong. They just kept it secret. Yeah, we just didn't, <laughs> didn't know say about anything it. about it. <laughs> there, is actually, there is actually a great moment when, when Kennedy, I mean, you know, Kennedy's 
President Kennedy is is new in the job. Okay, he's just coming in January. It's just like Biden. Okay, he's inaugurated on the same day in January as Biden. He's accepted in 1961, 60 years ago, and we all think of Kennedy now. You know, it's this cool, glamorous, great president. Da da da. All the rest of it. At the time, he was new to the job, and he was not doing a great job at that point. He really wasn't. And one of the things about him was that that he was very, very, very cautious about the what they called manned space program at the time. He was extremely cautious about sending one of the Mercury 7 astronauts into space in case anything went wrong, because 80 million Americans by then had TV sets. Yeah. And they knew that there was a possibility that this thing could just blow up on live television. And if it did, it was not only just a massive propaganda coup, victory, for the Soviets, but also what it was, was as one, I quote in the book, as one very top senior advisor said at the time, this would be the most expensive public funeral in history. And it would mm. be just that. They couldn't do it. Now the Soviets, everything kept blowing up too. I mean, you know, they had loads of problems, but they just lied about it. They just simply <laughs> said, no, it never happened. Or when they sent a probe, you know, to the moon and it missed and it ended up circling the sun, they said, no, that was actually what it was intended to do all long you know and who's to argue with it they, they they couldn't so the secrecy is very dramatic and i think one of one of the most interesting parts of that is the guy that is the architect of the whole damn program this guy called sergey korolyov he is unknown in the west i keep using the word the west but it's just a shorthand you know it's not russia effectively and this guy is a dreamer his mother would read him stories about flying around the world on a magic carpet when he was a kid. He's a, a dreamer. And he ends up becoming the architect, not just of the Soviet missile program. He builds the biggest intercontinental ballistic missile in the world at that time, which could leave Kazakhstan and reach almost any point in the United States of America in 1957 with a nuclear weapon on the top. It could just take out New York. That was then. 64 years ago. It's quite incredible. It's a huge missile. He sends the first satellite, Sputnik it's called, into space in 1957. He sends the first dog into space, Laika, in 1957. He sends an orbiting laboratory into space. He sends probes to the moon. He sends probes to Mars in 1960, for goodness sakes. And then he puts Yuri Gagarin in space as well. And yet, for the whole time, his identity is a secret. And the CIA desperately try to find out who this guy is, and they keep getting it wrong. They keep missing the guy. His name is taken out of every encyclopedia, every newspaper. He's just removed. He's erased completely. He becomes a non-person. Even the people who work with him don't use his name. He's the chief, the chief designer. Sometimes he's known by his initials. He's not a real person, and yet he's running everything. And he's so important, he's so valued, he's so protected that the KGB go everywhere around the Soviet Union protecting him in case he's either kidnapped or assassinated, right? This guy is Mr. Missile. He is Mr. Space. He's everything. And his identity is only revealed by Pravda, the paper that basically is the communist organ in Moscow after he dies. 
And then, even then, the New York Times don't pick up on the fact that he is who he is. He, they, they actually have, and I say it in my book, they have a little column on page 86 mm. of the weekend edition. They miss him completely. So you get into this very exciting story, because I really penetrate this guy. You know, who was he? Who was this visionary? How did he get there? Why was he like this? And how did he do these things? And why the hell did America not find out who he was? Because they never did. And while he was still alive. So you get into this sort of very exciting, it kind of ends up being a thriller. It's not a kind of boring history. It's sort of very, I hope, and as you go further into it, it becomes quite dramatic. And when you get to the point when Gagarin actually goes into space, it's sort of, you don't know if he's going to die or not, because the risk is huge at that point that he might be killed in any number of pretty gruesome ways. It is an ideology thing, isn't it? Because by contrast, yeah. Von Braun was on the on Walt Disney's yeah. television yeah. show about space. Yeah, yeah what, a, what a complete contrast. And the interesting thing about him is, is that he was desperate to find out who this guy was. He was, who is his rival? Who is this guy? Never found out. But Korolev was fascinated by Von Braun and Korolev's second wife, who's called Nina, uh, she was a tra- she was an English translator. So she was translating everything for him. So he could see what was going on all the time. Amazing. And there's no question wow. in this race to put the first human being in space, this huge step into what I call the beyond. You know, it's a duel. It's a boxing match. It really is. It's a battle. And this guy is watching every little bit of what the other one's doing. And there is a moment when NASA stumbles and hesitates. I won't kind of boil all the details. It's all in the book. But he... They delay for a few weeks. That's it. In February 1961, they delay. And Korolev immediately signals his people, right, we're going to put one up without testing it. We're going to, we, I don't care if it's not properly ground tested. We are, we've got days to do this. We have to go first. The whole prestige of the Soviet Union and of the hammer and sickle and of the red flag and all of that is contingent on our getting there first. And we're going in the gap. And they do. And they beat the Americans by two and a half weeks Mm. in a race that began years earlier to put a man in space at huge risk. So as we've discussed, the veil upon the Soviet Union during that time, there was a lot of secrecy, obviously. Uh, We never really got to know the first cosmonaut team in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, The the way we got to know the Mercury 7 in the States. And to a lesser extent, we got to know the new group, the new nine. But talking about the early cosmonaut team, they were really quite a neat group of personalities. Yeah, they're great. So uh, how can we better differentiate them here? Because really the only one I know about other than Gagarin, who was the first one, was Titov. Titov, the second yes. One. He's a big one in my book. Who yeah. was a nut. Yeah, who was well, kind of Well, he's like... an interesting one. He's an interesting <laughs> one. I mean, he's a nut. I wouldn't say that, actually. I mean, I interviewed his wife, so I'm not going to say oh, that. Oh, but... okay. <laughs> I love, I love say, Titov. I, she was lovely, and she gave me lots of tea and cake. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that. Oh, my God. But, Titov. But, but tea and cake, tea and cake <laughs> in Moscow. Let me tell you, you know, it, it was great. I have his autograph, okay? I love <laughs> okay, getting well, Titov. That is seriously cool. You've done better. Than, actually, I got his wife's autograph in a book that she wrote wow. as well, or he wrote that is. Yeah, I'm obsessed but with we him. Can do, we can trade autographs. Go <laughs> I, I think the thing about it is, is this. Um, well, first of all, read my book if you want to know. Absolutely. I mean, the fact yeah. matter is, is that the Mercury 7, as you rightly say, pretty well known. The right stuff, either if you read the book or there was the 83 movie. Um, and then, of course, there was the TV series very recently. 
um, which which kind of does that story. And it's quite a well-known story. But mm-hmm. the fact is, uh, the fact is the Soviet side is actually is actually much, and that's what makes it so interesting, it's much less well known. First of all, there were 20 of them, not seven. And there mm-hmm. were 20 of them because this guy Korolev was saying, we have ambitions to conquer space. This guy Korolev, think of him as a kind of a Soviet Elon Musk character, okay? Like Musk, whatever you make of Musk, he's a visionary, in my opinion. He is a kind of visionary. And this guy has that sort of sense of vision. And he wanted to conquer the solar system. So he gets 20 guys, okay? And they get all trained secretly. But in the end, six of them become absolutely key, called the Vanguard Six, the advance party of six. Mm -hmm. They get chosen for a variety of reasons out of the 20, which I won't bore you with now. But what makes it very powerful from a storytelling point of view if one gets it right, is that not only you've got Werner von Braun running the space program effectively in America at Huntsville, Alabama, and then you've also got, you know, this guy Sergei Korolev running the entire everything, basically, in the Soviet Union, dual there. You've also got a duel between the Mercury 7 and the Vanguard 6. But as you rightly say, the Mercury 7 don't know a damn thing about the <laughs> Vanguard 6, and the mm-hmm. Vanguard 6 do know about the Mercury 7. The differences are phenomenal between them though. The Mercury 7 are all military test pilots. I mean, they're working for a civilian organization now, which is NASA, but they're all military test pilots. They're all in their 30s. They're all really experienced. I mean, they fly hot jets, some of the most dangerous planes that you could possibly fly. They are Mr. Macho through and through, you know. They love racing cars and they're, you know, they're they're kind of bad boys, some of them. They really are. And uh, On the other side, on the Soviet side, what you've got is something quite different. You've got younger men. They are in their early to Mm mid-20s. They are much less experienced. They are all in the military because the space program is a military program, okay? It is not a civilian program. It's run by generals, basically. And this guy, these guys, uh, have very few flying hours. I mean, they've got like 200, 250, I mean, just like, you know, nothing, okay? They, they are being selected because they are fit as hell. I mean, they are really, they're young. They have many years ahead of them. They can go on much longer than the much older Mercury 7 guys. And also they're obedient. And also they are used to flying in a kind of a military environment where you do as you're told and you fly in very dangerous conditions where you can die quite mm-hmm. literally and quite easily overnight if that's what you're asked to do. So that's what they choose. And they have no money. They have kind of, you know, soldiers pay. And believe me, soldiers pay in Moscow in 1959. You don't want to know about that because you are sharing apartments. There is no radio in your apartment. Or if there is, it's what they call a wired radio. I don't know if you know what that is. But in Moscow at that time, it, there was no aerial. It's plugged into the wall, which goes straight through to the state broadcasting channels. You can't hear anything else except what the Soviet government want you to hear. You, there's no TV. They had no TVs. They had no refrigerators. They had no cars. Okay, so they went around by bus and public transport. I mean, this is what it's like. And they led. They led these kind of enclosed Soviet lives. Whereas, of course, the Mercury Seven, they have a deal with Life magazine. They're making a lot of money. They've got flying pay. They're flying around on supersonic jets that they're given as kind of play toys. It's two different worlds Mm -hmm. i mean it really is and yet they both got the same goal Mm. and the thing that i discovered as i started to get into the characters of these people 
And I really hope to bring them out, particularly about three or four of them, because there's about three that are real rivals for the first prize, is that these guys are every bit as boiled over, effervescent, competitive as the Mercury 7 <laughs> to be first. They're not really thinking about competing with the Americans, as the Americans aren't really thinking about competing with the Russians. They're competing with each other. Mm. Who is going mm -hmm. to be number one? Who is going to be immortal? Who's going to be the person that you and I are sitting here talking about 60 years later and maybe mm -hmm. in another 60 years and then another 60 years beyond that? Who actually is that guy going to be? And it comes right down to the wire between three men, a guy called Nelyubov, Titov, as you mentioned, and Gagarin. But what makes it so powerful for me, and I do try and really bring the characters out in the book, between Yuri Gagarin and German Titov, is that these guys are next door neighbors. Their families are great friends. They literally cross balconies on the fifth floor of their apartment and spend all day chatting to each other. They're mates, okay? And one of the things that really makes them a mate is that when in, I think, six months after they were both selected, Titov's little boy called Igor, at the age of eight or nine months, died. Horrific mm -hmm. tragedy in the family. And the Gagarin's husband and wife had a child almost the same age, a little girl called Elena. And Gagarin's family, Gagarin and his wife, Valentina, were absolutely there for the Titovs in this terrible tragedy. Their only son, their only child had died in this horrible way. So not only the next door neighbors, not only their best friends, but they've been there in a tragedy. It's so humanness for each other. And yet they're both competing to be first, the first astronaut, the first cosmonaut in history. So you've got this incredibly rich duel. It's not like, well, I'm going to be, it's they love each other, mm -hmm. but only one of them can be number one. And so it comes right down to that wire, right down to that wire. Much more compelling than John Glenn versus Alan Shepard, that's for sure. I, well, I think it's, I mean, I think that's a good story too, but I think this is a richer story because yeah. Glenn and Shepard didn't really get on that well. I mean, you know, I mean, Glenn, Shepard can stand the fact that Glenn drove around in a car called a Prince that did about 70 miles to the gallon. I thought that was <laughs> not what astronauts should do, you know? Yeah. And also there was this whole thing, Glenn was a bit kind of prissy and, he, you know, he was, a, he was almost too good to be true, you know? Whereas, whereas these guys, it's, it's different, you know, and, and in the end, they're only told which one is going to be the one. I mean, John Glenn and Shepard, Shepard was chosen secretly in January, the night before Canada's inauguration. It's very early in my book, in 1961. But Titov found out that he was second literally three days before. Wow. He's literally wow. called into an office and told. And he steps out of the office and Gagarin kind of, is very good at kind of containing his excitement. And Titov is absolutely broken. And he comes out and one of his friends, one of the other guys I talk about, came up to him, a guy called Popovich, comes yeah. up to him and says, hey, but you know, you're, you're gonna get, you're gonna go up. What's, why are you feeling so, you know, okay, so you don't get the first flight. And this is what Titov says, and I quote it in the book. He says, who was the first man to discover America? And this guy says, well, it was Columbus. And he says, who was the second? And the guy says, I don't know. He says, that's my point. I still love Titov, though, dang it. <laughs> I Even love him. If, if he did second, I, he, yeah. I won't get into my Titov love. That's going to be another... You've got this Titov thing going, haven't you? I do, too. Actually. That'll be a sec yeah, that'll be another show for Space and Things. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I won't get into that.
I'm happy. I'm happy to talk to you about TW. He's, no, he's actually a great guy. There was this third one who's very close to called Nelubov, I mentioned a few minutes ago. Yeah. And he was a very egotistical guy. And his story was quite tragic, actually, because he, yeah. he ended up after Gagarin's flight, getting into a drunken argument at a railway mm. station near the place they were training at. And he basically insulted a, a policeman, a, a military policeman, and he refused to apologise. And as a result of that, he was actually kicked off the Soviet space programme. And he ended up flying jets in the far east of Russia, trying to get back to the space programme, and he failed. And eventually he lost himself in drink and then he committed suicide. I mean, it's yeah. a really awful story. He just, he just, he, he, he is the, and his face is literally erased from, so, you talk about secrets, from Soviet photographs of the cosmonaut team that was subsequently released much later in the later 60s. He doesn't, his face is gone. I've got two photographs, I'm going to put them in the book, where you see the same team with his face in it, there's Nelibov, and the same photograph, and he's just gone. Wow. Like he's never there. It's like in the year, school yearbook. If you don't yeah. like somebody, you erase them out. Erase them. Gone. gone. There's yeah. like a tree. There's a tree there. And it's like photoshopped up for the 1960s. Yeah. That's yeah. what he did. So that's what happened to Nelly. It was a very tragic story, actually. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's a lot of, in my book, I really try to kind of explore some of these characters. And there's no, you've got to, you've got to feel something so that when you're there, you know, and you're in that competition, you're kind of with these people. And so you're riding that wave with them otherwise i wouldn't want to read it so i certainly wouldn't want to write it so another reason gagarin is uh perhaps kind of a enigma to a lot mm. of people is because obviously he died when he was very young he was only 34 and yeah. um in russia he's kind of become almost like a religious figure i mean yes. i've seen russian mm. art with him on it that's almost like he's almost mm. depicted as like an angel it, it's very mm. oh he is to, sometimes actually let's say you know alternate history right let's say he lived or he mm. didn't get in that plane that day mm. and he lived. What do you think he would have done? What do you, do you think he may have flown in space again or what do you think he w would have happened? I, no, he wouldn't have flown in space again okay. because <clears throat> um, after the death of Komarov that you talked about, who was the guy that went on the first Soyuz capsule at a time when the Soyuz was, it was a total mess at that point. It should not have flown. And the reason why it went up was because the Gemini program in America was already really getting ahead. I mean, the, the NASA was really getting its act together at this point. You know, it was, it was forging ahead. And so the Russians, the Soviets, I should say, were desperate to find a way to catch up. So they essentially mm -hmm. put pressure to get this thing up, Soyuz capsule up, which was their top new kind of space capsule, space, mm -hmm. spacecraft, you know, when it wasn't ready. And in fact, it's very interesting, just one quick point for answer your question. And that is that Elena Gagarina, who is Yuri Gagarin's daughter, and is a very mm -hmm. sort of interesting figure who runs uh, the Kremlin Museum in Moscow, and who became, I became very friendly with and, and I like very much. She told me the only time she ever saw her father cry, ever, was when he said goodbye to Komarov, because oh, wow. he knew Komarov would die. And he offered to take Komarov's place. He said, let me do it. And Komarov said, they'll never let you go because you are Gagarin. You are Russia's great Soviet, great hero. I have to do this thing. And she said he came because he lived upstairs above them in the same mm -hmm. apartment block. Komarov did. And so Gagarin said goodbye and he came downstairs and little Elena, who I think would have been about eight or nine at the time, saw her father and he was in tears. He was in tears because he was—he knew he was going to lose his best friend. I mean, they, they, Komarov was a very loved man. Anyway, to answer your question, after mm -hmm. Komarov, Gagarin was not allowed to fly in space. 
The reason he was flying a jet was because he was allowed to retrain and get back to flying fight, get, you know, get back into flying. He's a mm-hmm. pilot. He wants to get back in the air. So that's why he did that. And, and, and so he was allowed to, but of course he died. Had he not died, so I don't think he would have flown in space. I think it's very difficult to know. I think he would have become a very powerful, big figure in the Soviet space program. In a way, Titov did that. He rose to quite yes. sort of significant heights, actually, before he retired. I think the thing that would have been very difficult for him, though, was living down the legend. Because you rightly say, a lot of these parts of the Soviet Union, as was, and now Russia, have become bits that are associated with Gagarin, have become shrines. His town where he grew up, which was called Gzhatsk, which is about 80 miles or so, I'm not exactly sure, west of Moscow, is now called Gagarin. And in Gagarin town are eight museums dedicated to Gagarin. And in one of those museums, his own mother was actually forced to live in a museum dedicated to her son. It's an extraordinary wow. story. She what lived in this hell? museum. She lived. She was made to live in a museum in the late 70s, early 80s by the local Soviet authorities. She lived in this museum and sometimes people would see this old lady and she was so lonely and she would come downstairs and she would see a party of tourists who were looking around, you know, this is Gagarin's shirt and this is his this is his kind of, you know, his 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 cap, and this is his. These are his, you know, trainers, and this is his tie, <laughs> and this is the whistle that he blew once at a, at a baseball match or something, you know. And and she would then t- lead them round the museum before disappearing to her apartment on the top floor. She got so lonely that she used to slip back into her old house at night to sleep there, which was about you know fifty yards away. But that had also been turned into a museum. <laughs> So she would, I mean, this is, a cra- it's, you can't make this stuff up. This is all in the book. So she would actually do that. So there's a terrible status. So the shrine, the religious element you talked about, I, I think it would be, I think the divorce between what is real and what is unreal, what is fact, what is myth, what is, what is normal life and what is kind of some kind of crazed sort of iconic kind of mythical figure could have been very psychologically destructive. It already had the signs of being so in the 60s um, when he became, you know, alcoholic. No, I wouldn't say alcoholic, but he was drinking much too much and and he was getting a little bit sort of, uh, you know, he was going a little bit off the rails. He was touring mm-hmm. like, the, like the Apollo 11 crew had to do. He was going all over the world and, you know, it's exhausting as an ambassador for the Soviet yeah. Union. So, uh, you know, he might, have, he might have survived that psychologically. He might have got broken by it. It's, it's difficult to tell. I don't know. But I think his death, like the death of John F. Kennedy, another conspiracy theory around that, like the death of Princess Diana, another conspiracy about that. Same thing. They all die young. And because they all die young, the myths and the legends build up around them in an incredibly, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a how should I put it, in a proliferation, in an exuberance of weeds, as well as perhaps flowers. And it's very difficult to tell what is a flower. And what is a weed? Well, you know, that's just delightful imagery. Um, I'm I'm really enjoying this book. I, I love the way that you put things in their historical context as well. For example, I didn't know that the night before Gagarin's flight, Bob Dylan played his first professional show supporting John Lee Hooker, and that's a level of detail I really appreciate. And uh, it, it makes the book so much more well-rounded. Your 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 level of research for the subject and around it is is really something. I was very fortunate because I managed to get uh, my research, I had a wonderful British-based Russian researcher called Svetlana, and together 
she managed to get me access to the Cosmodrome at Baikonur, which is in Kazakhstan where all this stuff happens. Okay, so this was the once top, 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 top secret place. I and mean, it was the place where Gagarin went from. Incredibly, she got us there to witness the launch. <gasps> and we actually witnessed the launch of the last rocket from Gagarin's pad before they closed the pad forever. So Gagarin went in April 61, and in September 2019, I watched a Soyuz with three astronauts on board, one of them a, a NASA astronaut, Jessica Meir, who was going up to the International Space Station, and I watched them go. I, I saw her mother watching her go. I mean, th th it was, that she. I think she had a whole family there, from what I could tell. There were a lot of people there. And, you know, there is something really incredible, because I have watched launches at Cape Canaveral, and they're incredible. I've watched them. But in Baikonur, you get much closer. I mean, we were really close. Mm. And this thing went off at sunset. And I have never seen anything like it in my life. I've never, I never will, I don't think. It was like the whole sky lit up. It's not just in the Cape launches I've seen. The whole, so that's my fault, the whole sky literally lit up. And it was, and this thing, and then there was, it was total silence. And then suddenly this wall of sound, you could feel it. It was sucking the air out of you. And then it was like an earthquake and then thunder. And this thing started rising. My God, there are three people on top of this thing. And up it went. And everybody was just blown away by the noise, the thunder, the, 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 the physical sensation. It was awesome in the real sense of the word. It was awesome. And I, in my description of Yuri Gagarin's launch, that ma magical moment where he says, Poyakali, which in Russian, it means let's go. First human sitting on top of an intercontinental ballistic missile. I now knew how to write this because I was witnessing something very, very similar. And it's like nothing I'd ever seen before anywhere and probably never will again. It was incredible. Mm. That's Fan awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> I think that's, awesome. a, that's probably a good place yeah. to end. Just because. <laughs> that's a good place to end. I don't think we can get better yeah, than a launch. There's so much to digest there. And, and Stephen, if you're up for it, I think we'd, we'd love to have you back on at some point, uh, <laughs> maybe to do an episode about Titov. <laughs> Uh, for the anniversary <laughs> of his yeah. August, I'm up for it. I'm I'm enjoying my. Listen, you can oh, see what wow. I'm. Oh Yeah, no, stuff. this <laughs> is this is great. And yeah, there's yeah, so many maybe nuggets. we can. That would be awesome Absolutely because I'm sure. Pleasure. Yeah, between both of us, we could probably do a. We can good, have some fun with Tito. We could have we? fun with we him. Can have yeah. some fun with, and if you do do that, tell me because I'll go back into my interview with his yeah. wife and I'll get some great new stuff that. I guarantee will be new. Let's let's put a date yeah. in the diary. Let's, let's do that. Yeah, let's do it. What a wonderful interview that was. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I, I feel like there's a beh behind the scenes making of book that would be just as interesting as the actual book here. The level of research he has done for this book is outrageous. Yeah, no, I agree. I would like to hear more, you know, sort of how the book came to be, because um, I think research with Soviet space in general is kind of a chore. Um, I, I don't specialize in that area. Uh, for a reason, <laughs> hearing about sort of his process and how he, you know, sort of pieced together this story and how he, you know, actually went and talked to people and, you know, pieced together Gagarin's life and that mission and how it came to be. Um, those kind of stories excite me, but I agree. I think we do need to hear 
maybe a book behind the book. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd read it because I'm thoroughly enjoyed reading this one. Uh, and I, I want to know more about how it happened. But there's just not enough information about Gagarin in general out there, is there? Uh, and we in the West don't know enough about him. He's, he's the answer to a pub quiz question of who was the first person in space, which most people don't know the answer to. And 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 that just doesn't seem right. I'm guessing maybe because he just hasn't had a movie made about him or something like that. Hollywood needs to step up here and, and do something. But I mean, even I am into space. Even I've recently learned quite a lot about him and that mission. Like he had to bail out of that spaceship after it re-entered the atmosphere, after the one orbit. I didn't know that until recently. I think that's a, a bit of knowledge which has only come out fairly yeah, recently, I right? Think, um, if I'm not mistaken, and if I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody will call me out, which is fine. Um, I believe all the Va- or the um, the early, uh, I think Vostok missions. I think they all had to parachute out of the ship. That's just nuts. I, yeah, I, and I only found that out recently. And I guess it just goes to highlight the huge gaps that are in my knowledge about the Russian program. And I guess other people have this as well. Um, and in my opinion, it's really important that we we learn to celebrate their successes but and, and also acknowledge their values and, and learn about their values and respect those who died as a result. Uh, from this book, I've learned that the biggest disaster in space history was when a Russian rocket exploded on the pad, killing about 70 people, including the general who was in charge of the program at that point. Now, in my mind, these people deserve to have uh, their stories told and to be remembered for what they enabled the early space pioneers to achieve. Uh, the, the same way that we're uncovering stories about unsung her- heroes in the American yes, space program. Uh, yeah, there is. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm probably getting a little off topic here. Uh, there is a movie about Gagarin. I don't know if it's on Amazon Prime or not. I forgot. Uh, there is a movie about him, but it's in Russian, right. and it might have subtitles. And I, I, I'll, I've never seen it. Um, th- there, there are a few decent Russian, they're Russian language space movies. Um, I think I've talked about Solute Seven before. Yeah, you did. Yes. Yeah, it's good. I, I would watch it. It's not really accurate, but it's really good. <laughs> yeah. It's got some stuff that. <laughs> You're going to laugh at some parts are kind of cheesy, but it's really, you should still watch it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we hope whatever you're doing to celebrate Yuri's night or the, the 60th anniversary, we hope you enjoy yourselves. Uh, but uh, we hope you've, you've found this as entertaining and interesting and educational as I have. Yes, I, I certainly did. And I, I learned a lot of stuff that I didn't know. So that was really cool. As always, you can hear the full interview with Stephen, and it was a little bit more than what we've been able to put in the show, over on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things. And I will put Stephen's social media profiles in our show notes as well. You're listening to Space and Things. At the point of recording this on Tuesday the 6th of March, we've had just one launch since our last episode. In fact, it was just after we finished recording when a Long March 4C rocket was launched in northwest China to put an Earth observation satellite in orbit for the Chinese state. As always, there will be further details of this mission linked in our show notes as well as the video of the launch. These should be in the description on your favourite podcast provider, but if you can't find them, I know I mention this every week, but if you can't find them, always just check out our website where it's all listed on there and the videos are all embedded. That's spaceandthingspodcast.com. So it's been very busy on the Red Planet. Uh, first, the most exciting news, 
the Perseverance rover has successfully deployed the Ingenuity helicopter to the surface, and Ingenuity survived its first night exposed to the elements, which has led to the announcement that its first flight could be on April 11th, which would be a great way to celebrate the 60th anniversary of human spaceflight with the first powered flight in the skies of a different planet. Uh, Ingenuity has also sent back its first photograph, and it's all getting rather exciting. Uh, Perseverance is moving away from Ingenuity so that it can capture the first flight from a distance and maybe maybe even capture some audio of this too. Uh, but mm. we should get some images back from onboard cameras on the helicopter if the flight is successful, and I can't wait to see these. Uh, I'm freaking out thinking about this. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, while there are no scientific objectives uh, to these flights, the plan has always been to show that this form of exploration can actually work on Mars. And if it's successful over the next five months, then we could see this as a common thing on all future Mars missions. Yeah, this this is absolutely blowing my mind, this Ingenuity helicopter. The more I'm learning about it, the more I'm absolutely blown away. The whole thing is automated i think it's automated is the correct word i mean they have to send a signal for it to to fly 10 minutes before they want it to fly yeah, it is nuts. and then it figures it out for himself it's crazy it does everything else itself it's um it, it, the technology is wonderful anyway not to be outdone by perseverance and ingenuity the other mars rovers have also been sending back some amazing footage and information this week uh curiosity sent back a wonderful selfie in front of a stunning rock outcrop called Mont Merco. Uh, Curiosity is coming up to nine years on Mars and has covered nearly 25 kilometers, which is about 15 and a half miles. Uh, it's now taken 30 different rock samples from the surface as well. The photos sent back from Mount Merco show a variety of sedimentary layers. So scientists are hoping to be able to learn more about the history of the area and whether there may have been water in this part of the planet and what happened to it. Not to be outdone by perseverance, ingenuity, or curiosity, NASA's InSight lander has detected two more Mars quakes stronger than magnitude of 3.0 on its seismometer. InSight has been on Mars since November 2018, and in its first year, it registered over 500 of these Mars quakes. But strong winds have since made it impossible to detect the small quakes, but it seems the weather has now improved. And China, not wanting to be outdone by all these US rovers, have released two stunning photos of the red planet as a crescent in deep space. These photos were taken by the Tianwen-1 spacecraft, which started to orbit the planet in February of this year. You really do have to see these photos. Please check our website if you're not sure where to look. And finally, uh, speaking of Mars, Netflix has released a trailer for a brand new sci-fi film called Stowaway about a trip to Mars, and it looks pretty damn good. It stars Anna Kendrick, uh, Shamir Anderson, Daniel Day Kim, I almost said Danielle, <laughs> and uh, Tony Collette, and comes out on April 22nd, which is also the date scheduled for the next SpaceX Dragon crew launch. So that should be a fun couple of days. Uh, the trailer slightly and only slightly diminishes the sad news that we've heard uh, that Disney have not decided to renew the second season of The Right Stuff. Although there is a chance it may get picked up by another network, uh, fingers crossed. 
No more fit Chris Craft. I mean, hot Chris Craft. No more hot Chris Craft. <laughs> fit Chris Craft. <laughs> Hi, Eric. Uh, uh, Eric's probably, oh, poor. Poor Eric. I know. I did enjoy it. I, I thought, seriously, not just blowing smoke up his butt, but I thought Eric did a spectacular job as Chris Me Craft. Too. Like, So I'm very sad. I won't see him yelling at people anymore. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I thought it was just beginning to really, like, get good and we begin to really learn about these characters as well so hopefully it will get yeah. picked up by someone else and they'll carry it on uh, I mean it can't it can't be because uh, they blew all the budget on Alan Shepard's shirts yeah because <laughs> <laughs> he yeah he, there was no budget yeah. for that they just had him like naked the whole time I think they just had a spacesuit. yeah him, exactly so that was it. they were like here's his outfit you know this operation is somewhat like Hey, I'm just jumping in the day after we recorded because we just had the news that Dr. Philip Chapman, uh, who was the first Australian-born member of the astronaut corps back in the, uh, in, the in the 60s has unfortunately died uh, at age 86. Emily has written this little obituary for him on the Space Hipsters uh, page, so I'm going to read that for you here. Antarctic explorer, astronaut scientist, and early space habitation pioneer, Dr. Philip Chapman earned his name in the exploration canon. Chapman, who died Monday, April 5th at age 86, started his adventures as a member of an Anare expedition to Antarctica at age 22. This afforded him a later opportunity to study at MIT, where he earned his doctorate. In 1967, after securing American citizenship, Chapman was selected as one of the 11 XS-11 astronaut scientists among colleagues including Dr Story Musgrave and Dr Anthony England. He became the first Australian-born astronaut selectee. During his five years at NASA, he worked as Apollo 14's mission scientist and helped to devise the famous Apollo 15 hammer and feather experiment. Frustrated by a lack of scientific and flying opportunities at NASA, Chapman resigned that position in 1972. In ensuing years, he was president of the L5 Society, now integrated into the National Space Society, and returned to further explore Antarctica. Uncompromisingly outspoken and a self-described insubordinate Australian, last year Emily was fortunate enough to interview him about his life and career. A great interview and a man deserving of a doorstop biography. He will be greatly missed. Uh, there's also a tribute video from ABC Australia, um, which I will be posting in the show notes. Okay, all flight controllers, keep watching your data. I'm still going to be asking for a go-no-go go here in about four minutes. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week to talk about the early space shuttle missions. Uh, should be really fun. Thanks to all those who continue to support the show over on Patreon. Uh, it's not too late for you to join, and you'll have access to all the old posts, too. Just go and check it out at patreon.com slash spaceandthings to find out more. And talking of Patreon, Emily and I are going to record an extra mini episode just for our subscribers over there. Uh, that should be up later this week, so be sure to check that out as well. Thanks to everyone for listening, and please consider pressing that share button because in space no one can hear you stream space and things has been brought to you by 
and Things Productions.